Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, tonight we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to cover verses 20 to 27, and it's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So what we know about Daniel is Daniel has already discovered uh, from reading Jeremiah that they will be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and he sees that the time is now coming to the end. He, he can count. He knows he went into captivity around 605 B.C., so he knows, but this is not that prophecy. That's a 70-year captivity prophecy. This prophecy right here is different that Daniel's going to receive. This is a prophecy of 70 weeks of years, and this, once again, pertains uh, to, to the Jews, to Israel. But um, in this prophecy of 70 weeks of years, um, believe it or not, you'll see that you and I right now are living in it right now. We are living in a certain aspect of the prophecy of 70 weeks of years. And it's interesting. Now, I'm going to try not to, some of you probably already know this, some of you don't. I'm going to try not to spin your head around. As I'm going to try to go slow because I know when I was first learning it, it just spins your head around. There's just, there's a, you know, if you know it, it can really spin you because there's all these different things going on. So um, I don't think I can finish early enough to like field questions unless you want to stay after and field questions. I try to get you out by 8 o'clock at, by recording this, but, but you'll see as, as we go along. So in ja- Daniel chapter 9, you know, Daniel's been praying, and we're going to look at verse 20 and 21 first as we begin. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, on, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, Daniel is praying, and uh, the angel Gabriel shows up to him. Now, we know in New Testament that the angel Gabriel is the angel that came to Mary and told her that she would carry the Christ child. We also know that he's the angel that appeared to Zechariah, telling him that he would have a son. We also know that he tells Zechariah that he stands before God, in the presence of God. So th- this guy, is, is he's up there in the angelic uh, 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 level position of angels there. Daniel knows, and he said in verse 21, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the, previ- in the vision. So if we went back, we know in chapter 8, he's already had ex- experience with the angel Gabriel. So this is going to be a second time that this happens right here. Now, here's what I find fascinating, just a little sidebar note. Notice in, um, in the, end, the very last words of verse 21, he says it happens at the evening offering. Now, why would Daniel even say that? Because question, where is Daniel right now at this time? He's in Babylon, right? Now, the temple would have a morning and evening offering. So where's the temple at? It's back where? In Jerusalem. Question, is there a temple at this time? There is no temple at this time. That temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So there is no temple, but here Daniel is telling you that when the angel Gabriel comes to him when he's in prayer, it would be during the time of the evening offering, which tells you something about Daniel's life. 
even though he's in Babylon and there is no temple, he is still living by God's clock, not his own clock. Isn't that something? That he's still operating in that respect. And, and it gives you even more respect for him. Now, here's just a thought for you. Whenever you read the Bible, when it says the angel Gabriel appeared to him, how do you think Gabriel appeared to him? How do you think he came? Do you think he came flying in or anything like that? Wouldn't that be amazing to know how that happened? Like if you saw him coming like, oh my gosh, look at that. It would just be interesting. And I have no idea how he came, okay? so, But um, verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And that's what Daniel prays for. He wants insight and he wants understanding. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, in other words, the moment you started praying, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, first off, you see that the moment he starts to pray, a command was given to answer the prayer. Next week, we can go into chapter 10. It's one of the great chapters of Daniel because we get to see behind the curtain what happens when we pray. We see the action behind the curtain. Really, really cool uh, next week when we get to that. Now, the angel comes, and he comes because he's going to give Daniel insight. He's going to give him understanding. Isn't that kind of typically some of the things we pray for? I want some insight. I want some understanding into what's going on in my life. Now, he says, uh, one of the great things he says to Daniel is, uh, let's see, uh, where is it at? You are highly esteemed. So now we find that Daniel is seeking insight. Daniel is highly esteemed. He's loved. Special messenger comes from heaven. We know, like I said before, that Gabriel stands before God. That's what he told Zechariah. So that means that the message has come from another dimension, from another world, by an angel to the man Daniel. Is that amazing or what right there? So now he receives all this stuff right here. Now, <clears throat> verse 24. Here it comes. And this is where we start digging in. And, and start to understand this thing here. Um, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your people meaning the Jews, and your holy city to finish the transgression, this is a loaded verse, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So in this 70-week prophecy, all this is going to take place, which is a lot, a lot of stuff. So in your notes, two quick bullet points, and the first one is this. Weeks, the word weeks there is a generic term meaning sevens. So obviously a week is seven, but it means sevens, okay? The second bullet point is your people, you might even put quotes on that, your people is a reference to the Jews, so now we find as the prophecy comes, this is going to be 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. And the prophecy is to the Jews. Now, all the statements that are made in there, because there's quite a few of them. He says, finish the transgressions. are going to be end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, usher in eternal righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. That's a lot that's going to happen in the 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. Amen? So there's a lot coming. Now, here we go. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from, here it comes, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks, 
and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Bullet point your notes. The prophecy begins with the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. This is how it all begins right there. Now, it's a 490-year clock that's going to start. And it begins with someone who has authority, and this person with authority gives a decree and gives that authority out that you can go and you can rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, the big question then, as you read it, it would, you have to ask yourself is, who issues the decree and when does this person issue the decree? Because that's what you have to know, right? If they're going to do this, and this is what starts the clock of the 70-year prophecy, 70 weeks of years prophecy, you got to know who's the one who does it and when, is the, when do they do this in history. Now, keep your marker here. Now, Sunday, I talked to you about Nehemiah, remember? Chapter 2. I'm going to back up now in Nehemiah and give you the stuff before that. It just happened to fall the same week as Sunday when I spoke on Nehemiah, so maybe that helps us a bit. So let's go to your left, quite a bit to your left. Go be, If you hit Psalms, go over there. If you get Job, go even farther to your left. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1. And when you're in Nehemiah 1, say, hey, I'm there, guy. Okay, I think you're there. Okay. Now, I want you to see all that's going on here because Nehemiah, one of the great, great historical books of the Old Testament, but Nehemiah chapter 1, look at 1 through 4. This begins a lot of our cross-referencing tonight. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, what happened in the month uh, Chislev, that's November, December, guys. In the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, now, some people think it is actually his physical brother, but nobody knows that. It's more like a brother, an Israeli brother. Um, Hanani, one of my brothers and some men of Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity about Jerusalem. So he got some people here from back home in Jerusalem, and he's going to ask them about the city. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, side note, gates in Scripture, you will find that the leading men of any city, the way they would do um, city, government, transactional, stuff like that, they would always meet at the gate of the city. So the gate is always also symbolically a picture of authority. The gates are. So just a side note there. Verse 4, now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears about the condition of the city back home. The walls are still, you know, they're broken down, because remember, he was taken to Babylon 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes in the third siege, 586 B.C. He has never seen the final destruction that Nebuchadnezzar did, but now he finds out the city's a mess and the gates are burned with fire. When the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire, you cannot defend a city, correct? So that's why they're in reproach. And he now feels for his people because you need to build these walls up. You need to be, have a defensible city. Now, look at verse 11. He says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Stop. Nehemiah now has been praying at that moment for four months once he heard the condition. He's been in mourning and prayer performance. Now he's asking God, God, I need your favor. Because what is Nehemiah about to do? He's about to step in before the king of Persia because he is the cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer is not just the taster of food and drink. He becomes a very trusted, high-level advisor to the king. So that's why he has access. And so God puts people in positions uh, in life because God's maneuvering things and he's moving all the chess pieces. And so he wants, he says, God, I need favor. Now he says at the end of verse 11, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now watch this, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Okay, now as you look at this right here, you've got to understand that um, this guy, just side note, this guy, King Artaxerxes, he's the son of Xerxes, if you watch the movie, The 300, 300 Spartans, remember Xerxes, the Persian king, real man in history, this is his actual son right here at this time because the Battle of Thermopylae there with the Spartans was like 480 BC. So now we're moving through history. Now notice at the end of verse 1, now I had not been sad in his presence. Can a cupbearer be sad in the king's presence? No. You could be killed for that. Do you know why? Because it was believed that the king is so glorious and so godly that he would just evoke joy in your life because you're just simply in his presence. But he's coming there and he's showing a sad face. Verse 2, So the king said to me, Why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Notice, because he knows he could be killed for this. So I said to the king, Let the king live forever why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Now, Nehemiah makes a statement, and I'm giving you commentary because I can't help myself, okay? I'll get to the point in a second. But he says, the place of my father's tombs, smart move by Nehemiah, because he knows that Xerxes has just lost, I'm sorry, Artaxerxes has lost his father, so he feels it also. So it's a very smart move on Nehemiah's part to bring up the, the tomb of my father's because Artaxerxes can feel it. He knows what that feels like. So um, then the king said to me, verse 4, what would you request? So I pray to the God of heaven, stop. He tells Artaxerxes this, and the king says, well, what do you need from me? He never thought he'd get that far. How do I know? Because then he says, then I pray to the God of heaven. Stop. How long do you think that prayer lasted? And do you think he said it out loud? No. It was a prayer in his head that went like this. God, okay, here we go. That was about it. That fast. Because now the king wants to know, what do you need from me? Verse 5. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah, guys to the city of my father's tombs. There it is again, that I may rebuild it. Now question, does Nehemiah have building experience? No, none whatsoever. But he wants to go back and build it. Verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Stop. That means if you ask somebody for something, and they say, what do you need? You better know what you want. 
because he just asked some specific questions. You better be prepared to tell the boss, this is what I need, and this is how long I need it. Because people in power do not like people come up to them when they're not prepared. Any amens on that? Yeah, be ready, be ready. Now, verse 7, And I said to the king, If it please the king, great statement again, He's not bossing the king around. Let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Verse 8, and here's the verse. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates and uh, of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me. The king granted them to me. Because the good hand of my God was on me. Now, that's the moment now where the decree is issued, Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, of the 70 weeks of years. This is where it begins. Artaxerxes gave the command. He granted it, and it starts right there. He's going to go back and rebuild the wall. The clock begins to tick at this moment of 490 years. We'll get more detailed in a second. Now, for the sake of those of you who go and study it more and more, you're going to run into this, and I always give this to you so you have an option to choose. This date right here is uh, May, March 14, 445 B.C., when he issues the decree. Some people say 444, uh, most say 445, but that's not what I'm talking about now. Now, that's where it all starts. Some people do not believe that's when the decree was issued. Some people believe it was back about 538 when Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. Remember we covered that already? Now, I don't buy into that one, and the reason I don't is because the whole thing is about rebuilding and restoring the city of Jerusalem. If you read the terminologies, and this is about doing that. The temple's already been rebuilt at this time. Now, back to Daniel chapter 9. The clock begins to tick now. Now, this, this clock in verse 25, let's look at it again. So you, 925, so you are to know and to discern that the issuing of a decree, there it is, Artaxerxes decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. Big statement right there. And you'll see in a second, the prince, there will be seven weeks, say seven, seven. and 62 weeks, say 62. 62. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of stress. So the decree begins. You have seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. How much is seven and 62? 69. So now you have 69 weeks of years until Messiah. That's what he just said. The clock has is, is now just started to tick, and now... This clock is moving forward, forward, forward because the decree has been given. Now, here's what's cool about that. Here's what's amazing. Here's what's fantastic about that. In your notes, bullet point, God told them when Messiah would arrive. Is that wild? God told them specifically when Messiah would come on the scene. That's what he told them right there. Now, 7 and 62 weeks of years, or 483 years, okay? Until Messiah. Are you following me? Say yes or no. I need to know. Okay, so let's say we're at 483 years from the moment of the decree in 445 B.C. Mathematicians went back, did the math. They corrected 
all the calendar corrections because they didn't keep good calendar. We know leap years now, add a day, we know all that stuff. They were lunar calendar, we're solar because we know the earth goes around the sun now. We know all that. So they fixed everything, the calendar-wise, brilliant mathematicians, and this is what they found out, that the moment the decree was given, on March 14, 445 B.C., 483 or 762 go by. That's 173,880 days to the day. To the day of the Messiah. Is that crazy? And so all you had to do was count. Now watch this. Keep your marker here. Turn to Luke 19. Now the next time you read this little section here, hopefully this will make a big difference to you. It'll, it'll maybe jump out at you a little bit more than maybe uh, normal. This is when Jesus now is coming in on Palm Sunday. And watch what he says in Luke 19 and verse 37. He says, as soon as he was approaching, verse 37, Luke 19, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I'd like to see the stones cry out. That'd be pretty cool. Verse 41, when he, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He's crying now over the city as he's coming up there on Palm Sunday. Verse 42, And here's what he says as he cries. If you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. What did Jesus just say? If you'd known this day, if you just counted, I gave you the prophecy, you'd know the day that I was going to show up. To the day, 173,880 days to the day. And he shows up. Had they just counted? And here's the question. What is the tell? What's the, the sign that they would look for to know it's him? Go back to Zechariah. Go to your Old Testament. Near the end of the Old Testament. Just near the end. Go to Zechariah chapter 9. Here's the tell. Here's what gives it. This is what they were to look for. We're in Zechariah 9. When you get there to Zechariah 9, tell me, I'm there. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Now watch this. He says, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and what? Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a young donkey. Foal is like a young horse, a young related animal to that thing right there. So what would they look for? Jesus riding in on that little donkey, huh? And what's cool, it's the foal, it's a little one. So how ridiculous is that looking? Here he comes riding on this little donkey. How ridiculous is that? And here comes the Messiah. This is what you look for. Here's the timetable. I'd be here this day. Had you just counted, you would have known this is when I'd be here. That's wild to me. Now, turn back to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Now, let's go to verse 26, 926. 
Now, then after the 62 weeks, uh, the Messiah will be cut off. Say cut off. And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now stop. I want to give you something that would always kind of baffle me, but then I realize, well, that's just the way they wrote. So when you look at verse 26 and you see it says, then after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. It almost feels, it doesn't feel like they're saying after 62 weeks of years, that's when Messiah is going to be crucified, right? That's not what it's saying. You have to take the way they write. Look back at verse 25. What's the sequence of years? It says in the middle, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? Yes or no? Okay, so then when you read verse 26, I'm just trying to help you as you understand it so when you read verse 26 understand when he says 62 weeks you already assume the seven weeks because he has already stated that because that sequence that he's talking about so it's already seven but then he says but after the 62 weeks you already have the seven and 62 do you follow what i just said so it's 69 weeks of years. I just want to make sure you get that because you can go home and go, well, wait, it's after six. No, seven and 62. He's just stating only the 62 in verse 26. So now he's saying at this moment in time, after the 69 weeks of years, Messiah rides in. Here he comes. And it says in verse 26 at the very beginning, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be what? Cut off. You follow that? Now, means executed for a capital crime. means executed for a capital crime. Now, we know that Jesus was charged with blasphemy by the religious leaders, right? But he couldn't be charged with blasphemy before Rome, could he? Because they could care less. He had to be charged with insurrection. It's a capital crime. And that's what he's charged with. So they cut him off. Now, we know he's crucified. You know what blows my mind? Should blow your mind all the time? When David in Psalm 22 Psalm 22 is a complete description of a person being crucified, the exact words that Jesus utters on the cross. When David writes this, 1000 BC, have they invented crucifixion yet? No. Crucifixion's never been invented by, at that time. But he's given you play by play of what crucifixion looks like before it's ever even been invented. That's wild, isn't it? Now watch. In verse 26... <clears throat> He says uh, that this, uh, the prince who is to come in the middle will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, <clears throat> this now becomes a double-pointed prophecy. You know how we've done that before? Okay. Now, you're going to see by... This is, I'm going to give you the, the dual prophecy right here. Verse 26 the first thing we find here is that it says, this prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay? Now, most commentators, and I, I, I'm under, I agree with them, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he sits with his disciples, and he's up on the Mount of Olives, and he says, you see, you see all these, these stones? Or I should say, he's up on the mountain and he's looking at the temple. I'm so sorry. He says, you see all these stones? He goes, yeah. He goes, um, they're going to be all torn down one upon another. He says this about, you know, 32, 33 AD. It's somewhere in there. Different scholarship 
give you different dates. The most popular dates of Jesus' crucifixion are 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. of the two most popular. But it's all over the place, but they're the most popular. Jesus says that's going to happen. Let's say it's 33 A.D. Less than 40 years later, after he gives the prophecy, guess what happens? It's torn down. Because the Romans come, and they seize the city. A guy by the name of Titus Vespasian, by 70 A.D., after he's been sieging the city, 1.6 million Jews are killed. But he sieges, he takes it. Now, what happens is, remember Jesus, this is like now later, 40 years later, 30 some years later, a Roman soldier makes a dumb decision. The, the priests, as the Romans have invaded the city, they go into the temple. They barricade themselves in there. A Roman soldier takes a torch. He throws it into the temple some way. The temple catches on fire. The priests are burned alive inside. Because the Romans, they don't care. They just take them. The fire is so hot, it burns so intense. What does the temple have in there? It's got some gold in there. It's still got some gold. And so it melts. And it melts and it gets in the cracks of the stones. And these stones are cut with precision. If you go to Israel, it's like, how do they do this? But it gets in the cracks, so you can't get the gold out of there. So guess what they decide to do? We're going to take that temple apart. And the Roman soldiers are ordered to take the temple completely apart, stone upon stone upon stone, and they scrape all the gold that fell between the cracks. So well did they take the temple apart that to this day, no one knows exactly where that stone, where that temple was. And it's the stones that you walk on the floor that are all still there. But you can't tell where the temple was at all. They take it all. But it fulfills the prophecy that Jesus said, not one stone will be left standing upon another. And it fulfills verse 26. He will destroy the city and he will destroy the sanctuary. Now, side note, just so you know, time frame wise, that um, this is when 900 and whatever, six or five, just say 900, 900 Jews fled Jerusalem and they ran to Masada. You've heard of Masada, right? You've heard of what's happened there. This is when it happened. When they seized a city, they ran there. The Jews, I'm sorry, the Roman army gave chase. The Jews went up there. And in Masada, you cannot just tr attack Masada. It's, it's way up there. And it's walled. And it's a, it's a very narrow trail, the only way to get in there. So if you try to go up there and take it, you can't battle correctly. They're just going to stand there and just kill you one soldier at a time. And so what do the Romans do? They set up camps outside Masada. And you can still see the outlines of the camps outside. So make sure no Jews are escaping. You go up to Masada, you, go, you get to see the backside of Masada. You go up the front side in a tram, and you see the backside, and you see this ramp that they built when they got there. It's a dirt ramp, an earthen ramp. It took them 10 months of dirt, dirt, dirt. And this ramp just goes straight up. I mean, it goes up. And then finally, after 10 months, they push their siege, you know, weapons, you know, all the way up there because they're going over the wall. They're going to get these Jews. And, and when they go over, we know what happened, right? They, they, they decided to start killing themselves. And then the last two had to draw lots. You're going to kill me and you'll be the last one. Then you kill yourself. But one mom with, I think, three kids, she hit herself and she's the one who survived. 
so that she's the one who tells the story, actually. But because of all that, that's why the Jews, their motto to this day is Masada will never fall again. If you go to war with them, if you, you think you're going to win, they're, no, 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 they're going to fight. They will never surrender. They will shoot the bomb. They will do it. They're not going to fall again. That's their motto. They're not going to play. When you go to Israel, one thing you will notice is there are soldiers everywhere. You will see soldiers on maneuvers. You'll see that because they're always on ready. They're always preparing because they're surrounded by 150 million Muslims who would love to take that. The Palestinians want Jerusalem as their capital. They, they, people want them dead. So they're always, always ready to go. And so Masada is one of those places that reminds them that. Now, that's prophecy part number one. Let me give you the other half of this prophecy, okay? There are two different prophecies going on here. Look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Oh, remember? I, okay, well, I better, let me read it. Then I got too excited, okay? <laughs> but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That sounds Jewish, doesn't it? And on the wings of abomination. Have we heard that before? Yes, we have. Will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, here comes the second prong of this dual prophecy. This now is talking about the Antichrist. Got it? Okay. We find here that there's a week left, or seven years. Right? Because we're in the 70 weeks prophecy. Okay. Now, Antichrist is going to come during this time. When you receive the words offerings like that, you realize this is Jewish. This is an abomination of desolation. You know that has to do with the temple. Okay? But what in the world does all this mean? Let me break it down for you. Three bullet points. Let me give you three, then, I'll, then we'll get into it. The clock stops at 69 weeks when Messiah is crucified. Bullet point two. The church age begins on Pentecost. Pentecost. Pente, 50, 50, 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost. Third bullet point. The rapture will end the church age and start the clock on the last seven years. Okay, here's how it all works. You guys, anybody need me to say them again? Got them? Okay. Right now, in this moment, you and I are living between weeks 69 and 70 of the prophecy right now right now when the clock started with Artaxerxes granting that the clock begins when Jesus rides in to Jerusalem cut off that's when the clock stopped at 483 years but there's one week left there's one week left when the clock stops after and Jesus obviously resurrected ascend. The church age begins. You and I are the church. We're the Gentile church. We have been operating now for, you know, a little over, almost 2,000 years. If you read Acts chapter 2, 
you will find in the prophecies in there that the moment the church age begins, it's called the last days. That's what it says. So we're living in this in between week 69 and week 70 right now. What, what begins week 70 is the rapture of the church. See, we have been, we were the, the people, we were the second team on the bench and we came and relieved the starters because they disobeyed. And now we're in here now. This is one of the big, this prophecy is one of the big, big reasons why me, Jim Del Campbell, personally believe that we will be raptured before the seven-year tribulation period, the last week of the prophecy. Because once we're gone, the church aid ends because in Thessalonians, there's a restrainer that holds back the Antichrist. We're the restrainers. Because we would know that's the Antichrist, would we not? We could figure that guy out fast. I know who that guy is. Now, so once we're gone, this last week begins. Now the starters come back in because God was never done with the Jewish nation. He always was going to work through them again. How is he going to do that? Well, let me just show you quickly two ways he's going to do that. Turn to Revelation. I don't think you need to come back to Daniel anymore. No, you don't. Turn to Revelation. Revelation, last book, all the way to your right. Now, there's a couple things, among other things, but let me give you a couple things. Here's how he's going to work in the last seven years. This is him working through the Jews. Look at verse, chapter 7 and verse 4. Oh, look at chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. Saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Interesting. Who are these bondservants? And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Stop. So now we find in the tribulation period, because we never see the church ever mentioned again from chapter 6 to 19, correct? You guys know that? Okay, so now we find here comes 144,000 that are from every tribe of the nation of Israel. Fascinating, because God still knows who are the tribes, even though people don't even know what tribes they're from anymore. But God still knows. And these guys are going to be evangelists during the tribulation period. They're sealed on their forehead. Guess what? The Antichrist can't hurt him. He's going to want to hurt him, but he can't. And then the day comes in chapter 14 when you find him in heaven. So the assumption is they'll be raptured. There'll be come a time their job is done in the tribulation period. But they're not the only ones, right? You know there's some other ones, huh? Some very, very particular people are going to be showing up here. Look at chapter 11 of Revelation as far as him working through the Jews in this last seven, great seven-year tribulation period. I love this stuff. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. These are the two witnesses in the tribulation period. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. About three and a half years, right? So all of a sudden they're going to be prophesying for three and a half years. Now, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. Now watch this. This is going to give you a description of who they are. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Who did that? Elijah. 
And they have power over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who did that? Moses. So that's why I, I firmly, strongly believe that it's Elijah and Moses. Some people believe not Elijah. Some people believe Enoch. And in extreme, some people believe it's Zerubbabel. But I think it's clear. I think it's clear that these two guys are going to be coming back. And they're going to walk planet Earth. Can you imagine Elijah and Moses come back and walk the earth? And these guys cannot be killed either until, the, until God pulls his hand away. And God's going to pull his hand away. And they're so hated. Antichrist will hate them so much because the 144,000, Moses and Elijah, they're preaching the gospel, plus the angel is flying, angel is flying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You've got all this evangelism going on in the great seven-year tribulation period. Doesn't it give you goosebumps thinking about that? And they're like, man, that's amazing. And so they're walking, but there'll come a time when God pulls his hand off, the protection off of Moses and Elijah, and the Antichrist kills them. Do you know that they're called the earth dwellers, the non-saved earth dwellers on planet Earth during the tribulation period? They're going to be so happy that Moses and Elijah are dead that they will start exchanging gifts. It, it, you just keep reading the same chapter we just read. It's a satanic Christmas. That's what's going to happen. Is that wild? That's insane. Now, let's, let's drive this home. Now, it says... Uh, at the, if we went back to Daniel, but we're not. He says that eventually he's going to put a stop to the sacrifice, but then at the very, very end of the last verse of Daniel chapter 9, it says there will be a complete destruction will be poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, the one who caused the abomination of desolation will be completely destroyed. Okay, let me take it two places and then we'll be done. We're good? Okay, go to Matthew 24. And then we're going to come back to Revelation. I just want to go to Matthew 24 so you see it, that it's here. Matthew 24 is Matthew's end times chapter as Jesus is speaking. Now look at verse... If you know Matthew 24, it's all end times. It's what it's going to look like. But in verse 15, Jesus says this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, whenever you see Jesus quote an Old Testament book, that gives massive validity to that book. Don't miss little things like that, okay? Don't miss that. When Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection with the two guys, remember that? And they don't know it's him? It says that he began to preach, and he preached all of Moses, the first five books. Of He's giving validity to these books. Don't miss those little things like that. It's very important. But he says, as spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now watch, here's the key. Just to show you there's two different. At the very beginning, verse 15, he says, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation. In other words, has it happened yet? Yeah, it has. Wait, I'm, I'm, I just confused you on purpose. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes IV? Remember? He comes through Jerusalem, 167 B.C., and what he does to the temple, how he desecrates it, everything. Remember, he's a type of the Antichrist to come. Remember that? He's already done. He's already done the abomination of desolation. So there's two of them. 
Because now Jesus says, when you see, these are the Jews in, you know, in, uh, in like 30, 32, 33 uh, AD. He says, when you see it, when you see it. So there's another one coming. There was one in 167 BC, and there's another one coming. And the temple's not built yet, but that tells us, guess what's going to be built? That temple. That temple's going to be built. Now, the Antichrist is going to be wiped out. He's going to be done. Now, let's go back to Revelation. Let me just read this, and then we'll pray. Revelation chapter 19. Second coming of Christ. Verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Do you remember in chapter 6, the Antichrist comes on a white horse? Because he's a copycat, remember that. Here comes Jesus now. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, those are crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Guess who that is, guys? It's a good thing you're in Narco right now, huh? <laughs> you want to ride those horses. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. That's Armageddon right there. And we'll see that in uh, chapter 11, probably. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in, in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now listen, guys. This is an option for people. They can either eat dinner at the wedding supper of the Lamb in chapter 9, earlier in chapter 9, or they can be dinner in Armageddon. It's one of two. A person can eat dinner at the wedding supper of the Lamb or reject Jesus and be dinner at Armageddon for the birds. Isn't that crazy? Verse 18, So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, these are the birds eating, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on the horse against his army. And the beast was seized, that's the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet, that's the counterfeit religious leader. And performed the signs in the presence which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And that's where Antichrist is. Antichrist is done. Because here comes Jesus and the second coming. So when everything looks lost and hopeless, here he comes. Here he comes. And he sets everything in place in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
thank you for the prophecies that are so clear on the money. And help us, God, to learn these things and be able to share them at times, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.